0: Hi, Emma here from the A16Z growth team. Hiring the right executives at the right time is key to scaling your company. But to many founders, the executive search and hiring process can feel like a black box. In this conversation, which originally aired on the HR Heretics podcast in January 2024, A16Z talent partner Matt Oberhart demystifies the executive recruiting process with Kelly Drugovich and Nolan Church. He discusses how to prioritize what to look for in a candidate why you need a reference strategy before you start calling people, how to assess cultural fit, what to do to retain talent in a tight market, and more. The first voice you'll hear is Nolan's, followed by Matt's, followed by Kelly's. Before we jump into the conversation, please note that the content here has been lightly edited for clarity, and you can listen to the full version of this conversation on the HR Heretics podcast. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com disclosures. And now, let's get into it. Matt,
1: thanks so much for joining us on HR Heretics. How are you today?
2: Doing really well. appreciate both of you uh, inviting me to join you.
1: So happy you're here, Matt. So Matt, you and I worked together a little bit when I was at Carta. Uh, You were kind of like the shoulder I would go and cry on anytime I would have some sort of executive level problem or executive recruiting problem. And I I guess just kind of like starting with where the world is today, talk to us a little bit about Venture's lens on talent and how does like a venture talent partner assess talent?
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, it sort of all starts with what your mission and kind of what your role is. And I think, you know, the way that we're structured over here is, is somewhat different and unique relative to a lot of the other venture talent partners that are out there. We're coming at it from the lens of honestly not being recruiters. We're coming at it from the lens of being advisors. We're coming at it from the lens of being counselors. When we're meeting executives, the difference is we're focusing a lot more on their intangibles, and their soft skills in addition to their functional capabilities because we're not really meeting executives and evaluating them for a specific role. We're meeting them to kind of bring them into our network and be there as a resource to help them further their careers. We're not necessarily interviewing them for a specific role in the portfolio. So when we're talking to executives and evaluating them, it's a lot about EQ. Like, for example, how do you take feedback? You know, what are the things that you're aware of that might be your personal triggers you know, what do you see as your interpersonal impact in a room? You know, what sort of balance they have between humility and self-confidence, a lot of those things. We're also looking at motivations, intrinsic motivations, extrinsic motivations. We're doing a lot on critical thinking, like looking at their analytical skills, their business acumen skills. We spend time looking at their org savvy, their leadership skills, all these things that aren't necessarily role specific, but are going to be a lot more relative to who they are as an executive. And I think then that also plays in, you know, look, I've worked with both of you when you were in the portfolio. And, you know, the conversations that we had were always a bit more kind of strategic around how to approach the role. How can we help the team get calibrated on the role? Who are the best search partners to use? And then sort of letting you and that search firm run with the execution. And we remained in that advisory capacity, kind of being there to help you with referencing compensation guidance, our views of people that are in process that we know that type of thing. So I think our lens on talent is going to be a little bit different because the role as the the talent partner is defined here very differently.
3: Matt, what percentage of time are you spending on external kind of succession planning, meeting new executives versus advising portfolios inside people inside the portfolio? And
2: how do you balance that? It's a great question. I think it's probably about 40% with the portfolio, about 40% with the executive community, and then about 20% on the work with the veterans community, which, you know, we can get into later. But so if you sort of look at portfolio versus external in total, it's probably about 40-60, honestly. Uh, But, you know, as both of you know, in a given week, it might be 80-20, and then it might be 10-90 the following week. It just, so I think a lot of it for us at least is, you know, we measure a lot in terms of tracking how we're spending our time, where are we putting our energy? Are we putting our energy into, you know, meeting new executives? Are we putting our energy into sustaining those relationships by being there to offer counsel or introductions? Are we putting our energy into, you know, being on search from update calls? So we have a lot of different metrics that we, you know, track internally so that we can kind of make sure we're keeping a good balance and that there are certain parts of the work that we do that, aren't
1: forgotten or left behind, you know, in the heat of the moment. That's really interesting. How is your success measured?
2: Yeah. So we, we have, you know, metrics that kind of roll up as a team. But, you know, within that set of metrics, we have a fair amount of flexibility and latitudes where we choose to spend our time. So, for example, when I first started here back in, you know, 2012, there was a ton of energy being put towards building a network of executive relationships that is now somewhat, more about sustaining those relationships. So the activity and cadence around that sustaining is very different than it is when you're building. We're also measuring the activity with that network in terms of, hey, how many new execs have you interacted with this year? What have you been able to do for the executive community in terms of the number of councils you've provided, number of introductions you've provided? Hey, how many you know, search programs have you worked on with the portfolio? What's the value you've been able to add there in terms of, hey, you know, on the search update calls, helping them with mocks beforehand? How many subject matter experts beforehand were you able to introduce? All these different things that just help us really figure out what works and what doesn't work with the portfolio and the executive community, but also as a way to track the amount of energy that we're generating, you know, in terms of our
1: daily work and making sure that we're getting done what we need to get done. Yeah. You, you mentioned mock, and the mock is something I was not aware of before I worked with you all. And it, completely blew my mind. I think it's the best framework for executive hiring that I've seen. Can you just describe the mock to our audience what it is and why you guys are so passionate about using it?
2: So what we really tried to do with the mock, it stands for mission outcome competency. So the mission really is it's the elevator pitch. It's the one or two lines that dictate exactly what you want this person to really deliver at a high level. The outcomes are basically 6 or 8 things that you want them to achieve in the course of probably the first 12 or 18 months in the job. And then the competencies are related to what are the things this person needs to have accomplished, what are the skills that they need to have that we have evidence, therefore, they can actually achieve those outcomes. Now, the thing that you see that's missing from this is a recitation of responsibilities in the job and largely kind of a recitation of the type of experience a person has in the role. And we, you know, it's a deliberate distinction because we have found that Unless you really lay out what almost amounts to that person's performance review in reverse, which is the outcomes, it doesn't really matter what you list as the day-to-day responsibilities. Because when you do that massive recitation of day-to-day responsibilities, it doesn't come with any prioritization. And then, you know, what happens so often is a person gets hired off of that list of responsibilities. Their onboarding is pretty limited because in a startup, you know, it's hard to just to get time to talk through these things. So a person might be in the job 30, 60, 90 days before they have any sense from the CEO or founder they're working for what the actual priorities are that you want me to get done out of this long list of responsibilities. If you lay out through the mock process what the outcomes are gonna be, you interview against those outcomes to drive the competencies, even if there's some limited comms during the onboarding process, they still know from the position description what the heck the outcomes are that they're supposed to be working towards.
3: That, that makes a, a ton of sense, Matt. And we know with the chief people officer role, CHRO, we know what that role specifically, unlike maybe finance or sales, that entrepreneurs have, have a harder time understanding what that role is, right? Many founders I've worked with are like, well, that's why you're here. Tell me what the priorities are. And so that's framework kind of helps think that through before you start talking to folks, which I think is very smart.
2: Well, I think it it almost feels a lot like tree rings in some ways. The product and end stuff is what they always know the best. And then sort of that next ring out is a lot of go to market. They have some knowledge of that, but you know, it's more limited. But when you get out to that last ring, which is the operation stuff, which might be finance, legal, the HR function, manufacturing and supply chain, when you're talking about companies that have physical product, I mean, that's the area where often they're most limited. And what we often try to do is like say, hey, let's, let's put a first draft of the mock together. And that's where the subject matter piece comes in to play because we've got this network of executives and let's say it's a CFO search. You know, I'll spend time telling an entrepreneur, okay, there are three or four or five stage and market appropriate CFOs. I'd love to have you talk to you for the CFO search. So you can take that draft mock that we started And let's stress test your thinking on, you know, what you have in there with people who are real life in the job. And then let's also then have you go and calibrate against that, especially on the personality part of it. Because for the most part, they probably haven't spent a lot of time with CFOs over the course of their career. So the subject matter expertise conversations are really helpful to flesh the mock out further, but also to start to give the entrepreneurs a sense of what does the personality profile for this pool of talent look like? and start to get them to think more about who am I going to click with best from a chemistry and fit perspective? Because there's always going to be a lot of people out there who could do the job. Let's go ahead and figure out who's going to be able to do the job with you.
3: It's so funny because you've sent a bunch of those entrepreneurs to me over the years, which I've loved those conversations. And one of my biggest advice you know, to those folks is like, look, presumably we all have the technical and functional skill set for this job. Like That's not really what you're you're interviewing for right or unpacking. It's the personality of that person, the disposition, the fit, what they value, you know. And I kind of use like we're all crayons at a crayon box, but we're all different colors, right? And you have to pick the right the right one for you, which is usually the kicker, and the most important thing.
1: I totally agree with that, Kelly. And and how do you actually assess for fit? You know, I don't think entrepreneurs really spend a lot of time thinking about. It's more of a feeling that they have yeah and when you're in the executive recruiting process like feeling is not scientific (laughs) it's not strategic it's like oh i have a good vibe and it turns out most execs are great talkers so how do you assess for fit
3: and let me tack on how do you help chros assess for fit matt because i'll be honest i didn't do that as well as i should have 10 years ago right you learn but how do you coach the other side to also assess that side which i didn't do very well all the time
2: i think it starts a lot with stepping out of a typical interview process because i think look we've all been doing this long enough we all can tell when someone's on their best behavior and you have to test people by putting them in real world working situations and you know you can do that in a number of ways like go through a whiteboard session with an executive in an interview Let's actually take like a real world business situation you're grappling with as a founder and let's brainstorm it together. And people just naturally, without even realizing it, start letting their guard down and start behaving like they truly are when you get into that actual like pretend work session. Uh, we also always advocate towards an end of a process. Get the whole executive team together. You may give a candidate a topic. And if you give them a topic that's related to your business, you know you got to give them the data room to back it up, so that they can actually put a real presentation together on how they would have addressed the specific issue from a business standpoint that you're talking about. Or maybe they come in, when, you know, there's no data room. They come in and do kind of a 120 or 180 day game planning session on, "Hey, here's everything I've learned during my interview process. Here's how I'm going to approach building out the finance function or the legal function or the sales function, whatever it is." And you have this working session as a team, which basically allows you as the entrepreneur. Not only to be assessing the fit between you and the candidate, but you can see how that candidate fits into the room. And then you follow that up. Maybe that goes for like 90 minutes and then y'all go out to dinner as a team. And you just continue to see how that social dynamic develops. I'd say the other thing too, uh, which often doesn't get as much emphasis in the referencing process is really this question of fit. I mean, a lot of times during referencing, we want to know what did the candidate do? We need to confirm or dispute things they've said they've done, assertions they've made about their success at a company. But sometimes, you know, there's not enough time spent on well, what was it like to work with that individual? And I think that's the second part of it. It's, it's your own real world experience during an interview process with the, the working session. But then it's also, let me go test out, you know, how well they worked with everybody else in prior
1: roles. Yep. And then I also think with references you know, founders are typically showing up with like, their like five to seven reference questions. I find actually like running through a process, getting some data on people, and then actually using that data to inform the reference questions specifically in the areas in which we currently have flags, gives me better signal. What are the tips that you have for reference processing, both on the front door and the back channel references?
2: Yeah, you know, and I think you brought up a really good point there. Referencing should be, it, it. it should be almost like a continual loop. You know, you're interviewing, then you're referencing, you're interviewing, then you're referencing. I mean, referencing should be happening throughout a process. And I think by the time, you know, you're done with an interview process, you probably should end up with, you know, maybe it's 50 to 75% of the references are probably front sheet stuff, and then another 25 to 50 are the back channel. And a lot of the back channel is going to be happening kind of in those early stages where you're interviewing someone, collecting some data, and you're like, hey, I need to go confirm this. Let me go figure out, you know, out in the market who I may know that can help me with this. And I think, you know, we are honestly, we're in a period where people are getting sloppy with back channels. Some of the biggest things I tell our entrepreneurs is like, don't cold call into current employers. You know, only reach out to people that you know well that are going to, you know, probably give you good information. Don't be out there carpet bombing someone's network to try to get fifteen or twenty or thirty references. It's just you know, it's just poor form, and you know, it puts the candidate in an awkward position, makes you look unprofessional, and potentially poisons the whole recruiting process. Honestly, and even before you get to outreach, I talk a lot to our entrepreneurs about being precise. Like, what is your referencing strategy, first of all? Like, what are we trying to learn? And what we're trying to learn will evolve during uh, a recruiting process. But let's figure out what we need to learn at each point. And then who are the best people to contact to find out that information and be targeted and selective as a result of that and only be reaching out to people that that you do know. I think the other thing that's important, too, is if you're going to be doing the back channel stuff, there's a strategy where you can simply just tell a candidate, hey, I may get referred to other people that I may want to call as a reference. And is it okay if I do that without you knowing? In the course of just talking to them as a candidate, say that to them. And that way, you know, nothing's a surprise. Nothing's a problem later on.
1: And they can identify if there are issues that you would not otherwise know of before you go and reach out to somebody. It's just such a human thing to do that people just skip the step on and they want to just kind of like have all these like back alley conversations, which I've never really understood as opposed to just like, hey, this is a part of our process. We do back channels. I just want to let you know and give you the opportunity to let me know if there's any flags that you want to tell me about right now.
2: Well, and you you may find this funny, but like in the end, it's about building a relationship with somebody. You know, you're going to work with them. And the the funny part of it is like, if this were someone, let's say you were going to try to go date, you wouldn't be calling all of their friends who you've never met to ask about them there's a certain way to do this, which is constructive that actually adds to the process rather than causes friction and problems.
3: Yeah. And, and using back channels wisely, right. To the dating, like if, if you back channel with, with someone that, that broke up with them, ha- have the wherewithal, you know, they're probably not going to say all great, wonderful things and have the maturity to filter and understand that back channels are back channels. And you have to kind of vet that out because a lot of people were text one person could be biased boom you know and and it's just not complete
1: well i I want your take on this matt because like people do well in some situations and not well in others I, i worked with tony at doordash and he used to say the michael jordan of executive recruiting gets it right two out of three times he's had incredible stability amongst his leadership team but that's not always the case and sometimes it's situational uh, context, sometimes it's business context, sometimes it's my manager context, and it doesn't work. How do you guys think about negative references? And like when it comes up, as it relates to the specific new role, how do you advise founders on that?
2: Eventually, if you call enough people, you will get a negative reference on somebody. That's largely unavoidable. Now, you get a negative reference. I think you kind of have to evaluate, as you were saying, is it a state of the situation or as a trait of the individual. That's really, I think, what it comes down to in the end. Because if if you're looking at someone and it was a bad fit or they didn't perform well, or maybe they performed great, but the company didn't execute, like they were a great CFO, but product and sales could never get their act together. I mean, you can go through a long list of reasons why somebody may have done well in a job, but it didn't work out for them. And it's one thing we spend time with our entrepreneurs to help them go, okay, you're, you're never going to hire someone who is, you know, hundred percentile on everything. They are going to have weaknesses, and let's look at those weaknesses and, like I said, figure out were they a result of the situation they were in, or is it a trait that they have? If the weakness is a result of the situation, let's parse out whether that's relevant to your company right now. Are they going to experience those same things that cause them potentially to have failures? If it's a trait. Let's look at the rest of your team. Is this a trait that you could afford to take on, that you could potentially have as a development area for this individual, or is that trait that they're weakened so mission critical to the role that it just isn't possible for them to, you know, successfully execute in your company? So it's a lot of nuance, and and Nolan, that's I think what you were getting at. It's just a, a ton of nuance in the end, and really are these things black and white?
3: I, I also think the the best candidates, at least I've talked to and including myself, is to have the EQ to actually talk through that before you hear it from a reference. Right. I think that that's that's a big sign as well as as that self awareness, that reflection to talk through that during the interview process.
2: Exactly. And I think also when you're talking about talking through, I think that's really, you know, it's a great point. Founders sometimes feel like, oh, God, you know, can I actually bring up something to a candidate that I learned in referencing? Absolutely. I mean, have a conversation with them to get the added context on exactly, you know, what may have happened in that situation, because you may, it may give you an additional set of data that helps you make a more informed decision about what to do with that referencing information.
1: I always, I totally agree. I also really believe that people grow and people change. And the more experiences that you have, the more weathered you get, the better off that you will ultimately be. I mean, I look back and I'm candidly embarrassed about the person that I was 10 years ago. And I think like, that's kind of my general, so I know I'm doing okay. Is like every every 10 years I look back and if I was embarrassed, that means I'm growing really fast. Yeah. I think like that's when people talk about the negative aspects of their career, that's how you can begin to assess if they actually have been growing versus if they're putting some veneer bullshit totally. on it you could pretty, yeah. pretty easy suss that out
2: for sure. A- absolutely. How do you and, guys you think know, about that?
1: How do you, how do you yeah. guys think about that though? On the Andreessen side, like when you're like, you know, cause you're going to have data, you guys have, I'm assuming so much data on people and then like, you know, but as they move through their careers, they grow and change. How do you guys think about that?
2: Yeah. And that's why I think it's really important to re-engage with executives. Like it's, it's something I was talking about earlier in the discussion where it's like, Hey, I spent a lot of time in my early years here, building a network of executive relationships And a lot of what I'm doing now is sustaining those relationships and continuing to find ways to, you know, add value for those executives. But in the course of those conversations, you know, you're getting an update on them and you're getting an update on their lives, what they've accomplished and where they've gone. And I think that's really an important part of this. These are not snapshots in time. Um, Everyone is on a continuum of, of personal and professional growth. And that's why I always think it's dangerous to, you know, we talk about this with our entrepreneurs is like, hey, I know, you know three people that worked with them 10 years ago, it's like, that's really not going to be relevant data. You may see some things in their past that come up at that point that maybe continue in the future, or things that they they grew out of. And, you know, it's really for me like, what what have the last five to seven years been like in somebody's career? And let's really hone in on that when we're really trying to figure out who they are and and you know what they're going to be able to do for you right now, because anything that's earlier than that, and in, in often cases, is is just it's too dated.
3: Matt, in your in your role, the talent partner role, it's a it's a slippery slope sometimes in supporting these entrepreneurs. You know, and also helping them see maybe what they can't see for themselves. Would love any any spicy stories, anything you recall, and when you'd have to put your foot down and and tell a, a founder. They're wrong or they're making the wrong choice. And, and how do you choose those precious moments <laughs> to, to do that or not?
2: So I think it sort of starts with how we operate. I mean, we're not over the top with our founders. Our founders run their companies. So, you know, whatever you're trying to do is it's a lot of, I guess, leading by influence versus directive. And, you know, so when you're doing the influence thing, you have to start with a foundation where the founder has to have valued your contribution. Up until this point. And the founder wants you involved. The founder has appreciated the advice that you've provided to their business, and that founder trusts you. So it starts with that basis of trust to say, okay, I trust you and I look to you as a conciliary or advisor on things. If that hasn't been established, there's no way you're going to be able to have any impact on the decision. Full stop. But I think once you have that trust established, you can then say, hey, Here's why I think this is a mistake. And when you tell them, I think it's a mistake, it has to be grounded and backed up with data. You know, we're dealing with technical founders who are very data oriented individuals. It can't be just this subjective, well, I think, or I feel this way. Like they're going to ask you, well, what's the data behind it? Why do you think that way? The objective data points can come in all different flavors, you know, maybe it's referencing data. Maybe it is information you have because you've met the executive and have a, a deeper sense of who they are based on your own referencing independent and your own evaluation independent of whatever may have happened during the process. You may have company performance data. Let's say it's a sales executive and a sales exec is saying, hey, we hit this quota, et cetera, et cetera. Well, guess what? I actually know objectively whether that happened or not. So I think that's what it comes down to really in the end is the trust has to be established And once they trust and value your role in the process, you then have to be able to provide them the objective data versus subjective feelings or thoughts.
3: It reminds me of our episode with Steve Nolan Cadigan where he said, our products are judgment and credibility. Um, You know, those two things have to be there before utilizing those chips, Matt, for sure. But at
1: the same time, many founders are in the role because they're headstrong, they have a belief they trust their instincts and they follow it. And so what I'm hearing you say, Matt, is, you know, I, I you have to very seldomly pull that card just in general and then back it up with data. But then at the end of the day, it still is the founder's decision. And I'm sure there's been times when you've actually been convicted that, hey, this person is making a mistake. Maybe it actually, they, but they went forward anyways. Maybe it actually was a mistake or maybe it wasn't. And people are tactile learners. Like they do have to learn by making their own mistakes too, right? Absolutely. And I
2: think it also comes down to as well, like we naturally try to work with entrepreneurs back to that whole conversation we had at the beginning about how we view talent. And one of the things I mentioned at the time was EQ. And, you know, you have to have a group of individuals who you're advising that want your input. They are willing to show vulnerability and ask for help. They have the right blend of humility versus confidence, all those things, so that they're actually open to getting the feedback in the first place and open to hearing differing and conflicting opinions, perhaps, on a decision that we're making. Because, look, this goes beyond talent. They're, They're making business decisions every day, and they have to be of the mindset that I'm going to take in as much data as I, you know as I should and can, so that I have the most diverse set of information to work with to make a decision for my company, whether it's whether we invest in product A over product B, whether I hire this CFO candidate or another one, they have to have a mindset that is already predisposed to wanting the help and wanting the input from multiple constituencies. Otherwise, it's probably not going to work for them as an entrepreneur, honestly, because they're going to stub their toe a lot of times. And eventually that repeated toe stubbing is going to have a serious impact on the business.
3: And that I'm assuming that's part of the, the, your vetting process and investing in entrepreneurs is that EQ side. I mean, look, you
2: know, we're, we have a whole operating team over here that spends a lot of time helping entrepreneurs, as both of you know, learn the nuts and bolts of how do you hire talent, build teams, market the company, sell product, raise money, you know, all stuff that is entrepreneurs they haven't done before for the most part, but it's all stuff they need to learn how to do well to be successful. We want to work with entrepreneurs that are going to tap into that. So, you know, naturally we're going to be predisposed to working with folks that are going to want to leverage all of those resources that are available to them to help them become a better CEO.
3: Yep. Matt, you mentioned you have a lot of latitude in your role, which is great. It's also a lot of pressure. Is there any any moments where like that latitude becomes a little less and you're feeling the pressure and what, what is that like in, in your role when those moments hit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, I mean, look, having worked in startups before, it's a different feeling of pressure than it is when you're in an operating role and literally you're looking at the bank account balance going, hey, can we make payroll at the end of the month? I think that the biggest thing from a pressure standpoint over here is just when you're in an advisory role, again, you're you're operating by influence. You don't really have control over the situation. But yet your own success, I think both personally, how I measure myself, and also to a degree how we measure ourselves here at the firm too, is based on the success of these things. So you're basically measuring success against things that you don't have control over. And I think that's the essence of the difficulty of the advisor role And when you feel pressure at times. You're like, hey, I think this is how this should go. This is what I would do if I were in your situation. But at the same time, I can't go make you do that. And look, we take a lot of ownership in what we do working with the portfolio because we're really involved with, you know, all of you very closely on a day-to-day basis. And part of the reason we're able to do that is we have such a large team. We're able to be proactive. We're not just running around reactively putting out fires. Like I mean, when I work on a project with the portfolio, I'm probably investing at least four, sometimes up more months upwards, sometimes of a year on the whole process. So there's a tremendous sense of ownership that comes with that. And a tremendous sense of responsibility and pressure, it feels to make sure that's done right, even though I'm only in an advisory capacity. So that that's a big part of it for me, honestly, in terms of probably more self-induced pressure in some ways.
1: Matt, I want to talk a bit about veteran hiring. Two of my favorite people I've ever worked with, shout out to Jeff and then also to Casey North at DoorDash, uh, were ex-military. And you do a lot of work with transitioning veterans into startups. Talk to me a little bit about, like, why is this such a good fit from a skill set standpoint? Like, why is going from the military into startups, like, why does that work so often?
2: If, If you think about the military environment, especially folks who've been in the special operations community, they're used to dealing with very dynamic, chaotic, very resource constrained environments where that is very analogous to what happens in the startup world. Obviously, the subject domain and the work environment are, of course, very different. But in the end, what a lot of these folks are very good at, especially from the Iraq-Afghanistan generation, is I'm going to take a disparate group of people, probably some or most of whom don't even like each other, and I'm going to get that group of people together to accomplish a common mission and a common purpose. Now, how many times can you think of when you've been in a startup or you've had a similar situation where you got to get a bunch of people in a room? you got to maybe bang some heads to get them to work together well. But we have a problem we need to solve that's cross-functional in nature. These people are used to dealing with that type of situation. Again, the subject matter is completely different. The, the process to get to the answer, though, is very, very similar. And when you combine that skill set with the leadership they bring to the table, I think that's why they're as successful as they usually are. I love that. The, uh,
1: the, the two guys I was referring to are in operations roles. And, and have ascended insanely fast. I see this, this issue though with founders, especially in today's job market, who are indexing on people that have done the job before. How do, you, how do you think about the experience versus trajectory conversation? You're having to
2: buy into a different kind of potential. The potential you're buying into is their ability to learn your product and learn your business which is different than the potential you usually buy into where like someone is very good technically or they're very good go to market, they're very good at finance and you're, near, you're merely betting on them to progress and ascend in both the scope and level of their responsibilities as a leader. So it's almost the exact inverse where you're already bringing someone in who's very good on the leadership and the soft skill side but now you need to bet on their ability to ramp on your business. So that's kind of how I usually frame it with entrepreneurs And I think the other challenge oftentimes is, especially for folks who've been enlisted, not officers, these people are incredibly skilled, incredibly gifted individuals, but it's very difficult for recruiters to be able to map their skill set to what the open jobs may be in a company. And, you know, the translation guide doesn't exist anymore like it used to, because once we, you know, left the draft behind and we went to all volunteer armed forces, most of society doesn't have regular contact with people who are in the military anymore. So they don't understand as easily what those folks can do as may have existed 30, 40, 70 years ago when you had a huge proportion of the population was veterans. And what I often talk to vets about is like, honestly, don't go through normal recruiting processes because you're going to have people looking at your paper that just don't understand what you've done. When you see a company that has a role that you're interested in, Make sure you already have built out the network that allows you to go talk to somebody outside of the recruiting process who can help you, who understands who you are. I mean, you know, maybe it's someone who's a vet who already works at the company. We talk to vets a lot about build your network first, and then the job will follow from that. Because when you see something that looks of interest at a company, you can reach out to your contacts there and they can be advocates for you because you're going to be an out of the box hire. You're not going to be someone who checks everything that goes down the list for sure. So you've got to have people who are outside the process who are advocating for your candidacy.
3: Matt, how do you all structure that? Is it more informal? Is it a a more formal kind of widespread program for you all? How, How is that set up?
2: Yeah. So, you know, we've worked with a number of organizations over the years. You know, I've been on the board of Commit Foundation now for probably about seven or eight years. We do a workshop with them every year. Uh, We worked pretty closely in the past with Bethany Coates and what she was doing at Breakline. We have good relationships with Honor Foundation. Uh, We're investors in shift.org. So it kind of becomes a bit of a a, a hybrid. Like, you know, we do these workshops um, where, you know, you have folks that are interested in technology and VC uh, who are coming in. You know, I take a lot of one-on-one intros as well, where veterans who I know that I've worked with who've transitioned like, hey, you know, there's this individual over here that you really should meet, I think would be, you know, a fantastic high potential person in the industry, that type of thing. So it's, it's a mix of both, honestly.
3: I love that. Those informal connections are super powerful. So I love that.
1: Matt, just transitioning to a little bit about the moment that we're in today. I am of the belief that at least the beginning of 2024 is still going to be really tough on the venture back tech space how are you advising founders on their talent strategy right now? And how are you thinking about 2024?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, we still got a lot of uncertainty out there. And, you know, I think part of the advice depends on the stage of the company. When we're talking about the earlier stage companies, a lot of what they're working on is still those very focused, like our first engineering leader, our first product leader, our first go-to-market leader. And I think, you know, if you have your funding secured, where for the next couple of years, you're going to be working on what you're working on, regardless of what those macro conditions look like, I think, you know, sort of moving ahead with building that core leadership team is really important. I think the challenge starts to come in on the growth and later stage side, because you've got a lot of companies that. In some cases, already expected to be public entities by now within the infusion of capital from that and others that are stacked up now waiting for that wave of companies to go out. So I think when you're looking at your hiring plan, it's really about, you know, we need to be focused on profitable growth. It is not growth for the sake of growth anymore. You know, companies have to run much more lean and tighter than they have over the last 15 years. And it's a little bit of a back to the future feeling because we've kind of returned, I think, to a macro environment that reflects where we were, you know, in the 2000s and earlier. So the advice that we provide is somewhat dependent really on the stage of the company and, and where they are from a liquidity standpoint.
3: Matt, we talked about this I think a couple months ago, and we chatted on the phone, right, about the the market shifting, especially with those later stage companies that were close to IPO kind of valuations changing, coupled with the the, the struggle of hiring top notch executives in this time, especially with that that equity change. Have you seen any creative ways of reconciling that, or thinking about that, or anything companies are doing to still gr- get? great talent, even though this market has shifted.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think you do at some point just have to recognize reality. You know, a lot of the the reset that has taken place has had to do with employee retention issues. Um, you know, a lot less to do without going out and raising new capital. So this idea of trying to retain your top employees and one of the main ways you have to do that is to kind of reset what their, their, the valuations look like and potentially then, you know, provide additional equity to help true them up, I think is a really important thing to be considering right now um, to be able to retain that top talent. If you do that, then there's a whole bunch of cascading effects that of course then make you more marketable to potential new employees. But I think the core of it starts with honestly ripping the bandaid off and going, Hey, you know, the longer it takes for us to do this, the less competitive we probably become. Um, And we have to just recognize that and just bite
1: the bullet. I talked to a founder a few weeks ago, Who had raised a really large round at a really high valuation that no longer makes sense in today's world. And they're now recruiting for C level roles. And well, I asked him first, I was like, How are you talking to candidates about this? And he was like, Well, how do you think I should? Because I have no idea. And my guidance to him was just be honest, right? We raised in 2021 this was the market price. I know it's no longer the market price, but we don't need to go to market today for a new financing round. But my commitment is, is when we do, we will mark you to market at that new financing price and then re-up your equity. Do you think that that's good advice? And are you talking founders similarly? I mean, it's very situational. Let's say you have a very long runway of
2: capital. Let's say you've got three, four, five, six years, even some companies I've talked to have had like six or seven years of runway. I think it's very dependent on that question. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, how long do you have before you have to go reprice via an equity raise? And if you've got a long time, that's let's say call it over 36 months, you know, I think that argument can work. Now, of course, the candidate has to buy into everything else, a vision of the company, buying into who you are as a leader and your ability to execute on the vision, everything else has to be rock solid because there's going to be a lot of other opportunities that are going to be out there during that time frame after which you hire this person that are going to be more financially attractive in probably most cases. And the last thing you want to see is a candidate who you hire who's constantly looking over their shoulder going, hey, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, that over there looks a lot, you know, so that's, you don't want to go, you know, win the battle that way, but then eventually lose the war because you brought this person in, but they weren't totally on board with everything. And therefore they're always going to be looking for the next best thing. Really well said.
3: Yep, for sure. So Matt, I know we have a few minutes left yes. just to transition to our rapid fire <laughs> round uh, called talent rules. A couple quick questions for you. Who, who has been your best hire in your career and why?
2: So I think you all appreciate this. There was a woman I hired in the third startup I worked for. There's always that, you know, when you're still like under 50 people or even 100 people, there's always someone who's that operational glue. And it was a woman named Rochelle. And I hired her, first hire when I joined the company. And she basically did all the QuickBooks work, was the office manager, handled all the HR paperwork, was the company confessional as to everything that went on. And we had a lot of drama. Those people, like that one person basically did like five or six jobs. And... I always find those people are incredibly short supply in startups. There's not a lot of them out there, but when you find one, they are a true gem and they can do so much to help the company. So probably not the answer you were expecting, but...
3: <laughs> I can I can feel what you're explaining, though. I love it. I can. Um, and w- what has been one of your most favorite interview questions over the years that has given you the biggest, best signal on candidates?
2: Um, really good signal I get is I ask people, what's the toughest piece of feedback they've received? In the last five years and how did they respond that's always one that i find gets at a lot of issues related to eq critical thinking organizational savvy in a lot of cases too
1: growth mindset yeah that's that's also my favorite question matt i feel like when you ask somebody about a tough piece of feedback not only do you get like all the soft spots you also get like what tactically did somebody give them feedback on like what did someone else think that their biggest area of growth is uh, and then were they able to learn from that and make it a strength?
2: And then when someone also basically answers with that classic, it looks like a backhanded compliment to themselves. By the time they're done, you're like, okay, you are no no good to me.
1: That just makes me throw up. Like I throw up in thinking about that.
3: We, we've heard that on like multiple episodes. So I, like, when is that just going to die? Because everyone knows. Everyone knows now. And so to Nolan's point.
1: <laughs> just be authentic. Yeah. There are slow
2: learners out there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Matt, this has been so good. Thank you so much for the time. Our audience is going to take away so much about exec recruiting from this episode. We can't thank you enough.
3: 100%. Thanks, Matt. My pleasure. Appreciate
2: you both inviting me on and uh, do it again anytime.